David Spicer's enthusiasm for the arts in all its forms is palpable. His participation exists in several identities, producer, publisher, performer and patron. He's a regular at the theatre and relishes nurturing new work. It's a broad portfolio. Spicer is a journalist and worked for the ABC in Metropolitan Radio and Television, delivering news and current affairs. He was acknowledged with the Walkley Award two years running for Best Radio Current Affairs Story. Equally at home, on the stage, he has performed most of the lead tenor repertoire in the Gilbert and Sullivan canon, in concerts and production. In 2008, he acquired management of Stage Whispers Performing Arts magazine, an essential guide for the theatre-goer and participant, delivering news, reviews and listings. Since 1995, Spicer has been the communications officer for the Association of Community Theatre. In this capacity, he helped form the ACT's What's On brochure and a biannual community theatre conference. He began his foray into representing stage plays and musicals in 1998, when David Spicer Productions licensed two musicals. The company now licenses more than 200 productions in countries all over the world. David joined stages to examine his many roles and the vital need for an arts experience in society, especially in the present challenging times. Hello, David Spice. Thanks for joining me on Stages. A pleasure, and I feel honoured to be in such illustrious company when I look through your amazing uh, catalogue of talent that you've had. I'll have to, I've got big shoes to fill. Well, I think in some of the hats that you wear, uh, you're responsible for probably putting some of that talent in, uh, into work or providing platforms where they can work. In, yes, certainly. I've got a, uh, a diverse sort of catalogue of shows that uh, are performed all over the place. Which we'll talk uh, more about a little bit later in the conversation. How are you? I, I must. We must tell the listener also that we're doing this very remotely, thanks to uh, the wonderful technology that is now available and bringing us all together in this time when we're supposed to be apart. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds crystal clear, even though we're uh, either either ends of Sydney. <laughs> now I'm going to start with a question, which is probably a little bit out of left field, but I'm sure you can answer it. What's your favourite uh, Gilbert and Sullivan tenor role? Oh, well, it'd have to be Rafe in HMS Pinafore, which I played at the Waverley Lugabray Players uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, uh, that, that, I absolutely adored that, that in my uh, local suburb. And the funny thing about that production, uh, when I was uh, allowed out of, the, uh, out, of, out of home to be in amateur musicals, was it was actually a production that I was licensing at the same time. It was the Simon Gallagher version of Pirates of uh, HMS Pinafore. So I was, I was, I was the Rafe, uh, the leading romantic lead in uh, the unique adaptation of HMS Pinafore that I was licensing. But it didn't matter, the director of the show, who, uh, Marion Morrison, who uh, 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 of course is the mother of the Prime Minister, uh, she directed the show and uh, she fearlessly cut a song from me, uh, even though I uh, liked the song and I was the agent for the copyright. It didn't matter, the director won. I dipped my lid for her higher authority to, to cut a song that she thought was superfluous. You could have withdrawn the rights, but I suppose you had too many vested interests in it, didn't you? She stared me down and, she, and I was not going to withdraw the rights. Besides, we're all looking forward to sort of, my family looking forward to seeing me on the stage, which didn't happen very often. You've performed a lot of uh, the GNS roles, though, I believe, haven't you? 
Yes, um, uh, post high school I was with the Savoy Arts Company, which is based on the uh, lower north shore of Sydney, and uh, we did, uh, played Strephon in Iolanthe and uh, done concert versions of Frederick in uh, the Pirates of Penzance. So, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan and sort of light, light opera is, uh, when I used to perform, was my forte. Um, I love throwing this question at people to see whether they can recall it, but who wrote the book and who wrote the lyrics? Or the music? For Gilbert and Sullivan? Yeah. Well, of course. W.S. Gilbert was the lawyer and Sir Arthur Sullivan was the composer. Am I right? Yeah, you are. You are absolutely right. Um, what about this, though? Do, do you know the, the how they fell out? How they fell out? Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, they had a fight over something. Was it a fight over money? No. Well, yeah, yeah, sort of. To do with a carpet. The carpet? Which operator did they... Uh, oh, somebody spent too much money on the carpet. Doily Cart was, had spent too much money on um, a new carpet for the Savoy. So um, Gilbert eventually ended up taking it up in court. And Sullivan sided with Doily Cart. So the famous carpet quarrel started. Isn't that fascinating? Well, um, it's, it's a shame about life that often, you know, big fights can start over petty things. It's, you know, the ability to, 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 to solve conflict is uh, very valuable in the performing arts in all aspects of life, of course. Well, I suppose you find those creative writing teams, um, as well as writing, they also start to have vested interests as producers. I mean, you certainly think of Rodgers and Hammerstein, and I know that they sort of uh, started to take the mantle of some of their shows? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that the more successful they become, the more adept they are at, at negotiating you know, rights. I mean, if you look at Andrew Lloyd Webber, he, he uh, of course, was you know, starting off with Tim Rice. They had uh, uh, huge success with their early rock operas. And then uh, ultimately, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber you know, became his own producer and, uh, you know, with Cameron McIntosh in respects and, and very savvy about managing the business side of things and, uh, of course, has had many different writing partners over the years. So, uh, you know, the, the, the smarter and the more successful they are, the better they are at probably managing their affairs in the long run. Well, you look at uh, Mr McIntosh also, who was a, a renowned producer in his own right, but then acquires the ownership of a company like Music Theatre International, which licences not only his shows, but, but many other uh, works by different composers. Well, absolutely. And uh, so he, and of course, he's got all the theatres on the West End, which are now sadly closed. Um, so uh, he, he's uh, uh, suffering, uh, you know, in an extreme way in the, well, he's, he's very well off. But his businesses have come to a shuddering halt, uh, you know, exponentially because the theatres are shut, can't put the shows on. And, uh, of course, Music Theatre International, which is the largest licensor of musicals in the world, well, of course, um, you know, non-professional shows are, are stopped in their tracks as well. So, uh, uh, you know, but, but certainly uh, that, that side of thing, you know, he, he certainly has got his, his, his fingers in all sorts of theatrical pies. It's extraordinary, isn't it, to think of an individual that can become a billionaire just through theatre. <laughs> I could understand with films, but it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, the heights that he's achieved? As a producer, and he can't sing, and he can't write. Or can he direct? 
but through his skills of bringing together all of that talent and making it work has made him this incredibly wealthy man. But look, you know, it's wonderful in other respects where you've got, you know, uh, two people come together, write a show, and they can, you know, create enormous wealth just through their extraordinary talent. That's, you know, I think a wonderful thing. Now, David, I take it you're a Sydney boy? Yes. Yeah, where did you grow up? I grew up in Carlingford, uh, Sydney's northwest. Uh, I was always interested in musicals. I was in the uh, uh, I was in the local primary school musical, high schools. I loved the gang show out Scouts and uh, had singing lessons. And so I, I was always interested in the in the arts. And when I left school, I either wanted to be a journalist or an actor. That's what I wrote on my, my yearbook at uh, Carlingford High. Uh, did you um, have much of a, a family influence who were taking you to the theatre when you were younger? Well, my grandparents were uh, very into the, into the performing arts. Uh, they were um, they were uh, Viennese refugees. Uh, they uh, I had this. They were very much into opera and classical music, and. Uh, were you know devastated to be thrown out of Europe in the late 1930s? Of course, you know supremely grateful that they escaped with their lives. But they came to the uh, you know certainly uh, Sydney in the 1940s wasn't Vienna in the 1930s. But certainly there was always that sort of classical music, you know, violin lessons, and uh, push towards you know, opera and operetta. I certainly didn't have stage parents. Um, but they, you know, they didn't, they didn't oppose it. But, but you know, my father was a doctor and my mother was a piano teacher. But um, and my brothers didn't necessarily get into musicals like I did. <laughs> so, uh, but that was yes, I certainly had that background. Yes, it's amazing how um, you know siblings with the same parents can sort of have such disparate uh, interests. Absolutely, yeah, you know, chalk and cheese. Uh, yeah, and it's a great thing. Yeah, so. I, I mean, you know, I listened to Simon Burke on your podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and he was saying how his parents, you know, were not stage parents. It was entirely up to them. So I think, you know, parental parental influence can, can work in some respects. In other respects, it's just in your DNA. You just, you know, you've got that grease paint in your veins or not. That's right. You'll, you'll seek it out, won't you? If you're, you're hungry enough and focused and, and wanted enough, you will find what you're after. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, when, when I was in high school, I either wanted to be a journalist or um, an actor, uh, but I, I quickly realised that I certainly didn't have the talent <laughs> to make a living as an actor. So that was a, a firmly remained a hobby. Although I love singing, and I did a lot of I did singing lessons, and uh, you know, love being in music, amateur musicals. So were your, your parents happy about you, the possibility of you uh, being an actor? Um, were they encouraging and saying, well, get something to fall back on, go and study journalism? Absolutely. They, my, my father's a doctor and um, you know, neither of them would have really encouraged me to be an actor. But I, I did, you know, I, I mean, I, when I was in high school, I had small roles in movies, which was, which was fun. I had one line in the miniseries, Body Line. Uh, so I... I, I I, I toyed with it as a as a hobby, but you know, I didn't really take it seriously that I that acting or you know performing arts. 
on the stage was was it all a possibility and I was very lucky to get into journalism and uh, get a cadetship at the ABC at a very young age. So you're not off to university, you're straight to the ABC, are you, and serving uh, at the cadetship? No, no, no. Well, no. I was uh, I was with Michael Rowland uh, at UTS, of course, he's the presenter of uh, ABC Breakfast, and we were both lucky enough to get cadetships at the ABC uh, while we were studying. In those, so before we even finished the degree. So I was a first year cadet at the age of 20 at the ABC at, at William Street uh, in, in the city, and. Uh, so they were the good old days when the ABC would employ three radio news cadets in every or two in every state of Australia. That was that was absolutely and there was a huge radio newsroom, rounds and resources and typing pools and training. Um, you know, uh, whereas these days the ABC they'll, they'll have one cadet per state if you like. So. Is that because of uh, the funding cuts or because the nature of uh, the media has has changed so much and news is delivered in different ways? Well, absolutely, a bit of both. Uh, certainly radio is a shadow of its former self. Um, you know, and, of course, online didn't exist in 1988 when I was a kid at the ABC. Yeah. So, so, and mobile phones didn't. Oh, we used to have bricks. We used to, I remember the suitcase, <laughs> carrying a huge suitcase on a protest. Oh, and then it was a revolution. And that was your phone. That was, oh, that was, it, was, it was like a bricks suitcase, and then uh, <laughs> reporting from the field. And so, um, uh, yes, yeah, certainly the the, a, the ABC doesn't have the resources, and also, you know, of course, radio, as I said, it's got much fewer resources than it did in those days. You were at the ABC for about thirty years, I believe. Thirty years, absolutely. I started in '88. We used to go to. Uh, I was a cadet. And um, I remember walking to the ABC newsroom uh, in William Street, and there was a room full of clickety-clack typewriters. We didn't even have electronic typewriters. People spoke at work. There was a typing pool. Uh, there was a World War II veteran who was giving me some instructions. He was about to retire. We used to have a thing called the dog box. We'd listen to the police radio and ring up every police station in New South Wales asking if anything had happened overnight, be it a triple axe murder or a lion escaping from a circus <laughs> on the hunt for those sorts of horrible or amusing stories. Well, I, mean, I guess there were nights where there was just nothing happening. Absolutely. You'd ring around and absolutely nothing would happen. And then they, they would sort of sleepily say, oh, yeah, um, that lion escaped from the circus. <laughs> so then you'd race, type on your, type the story up, and you'd be leading the seven forty-five news, and you'd be a, you'd be have a huge audience. So what was your uh, speciality uh, in journalism? Uh, I guess current affairs. Well, I started off uh, doing general news, police rounds in radio news, the ABC. I then got into I was the civic local government reporter. I then went to state politics. Um, radio current affairs uh, and television and then uh, 13 years in television so I was generally a a news reporter uh, thrown at all sorts of stories Um, I loved of course when I got the opportunity to do a colour or an art story I was always met with like Manna from Kevin Um, and also a bit of of colour pieces also a a lot of fun but um, you know you, you have some extraordinary experiences I mean 
I mean, I was there at the opening ceremony of the year 2000 Olympics. It's the only, only, only aviation before I've been there. I landed on uh, a US aircraft carrier on a fighter jet. I just got to the different bushfires in Newcastle. Were a bit quaky. Uh, another ride. So I was there on the day getting slapped by a, a yobbo. Um, wow. So, you know, so many bushfires, fire, uh, floods. So, you know, uh, of course, plenty of very boring days in between. Um, yeah. But often a front row seat to those significant events. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Bizarre events. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you, the funniest story was that Malcolm Turnbull, when he won the election, he actually made the announcement a week after the election, and there were no reporters in the news, practically, at his press conference. I thought, how bizarre. I am the only reporter covering the Prime Minister of Australia claiming an election victory. One other reporter came in because he announced it in such a strange, low-key way a week after the event. Wow. I've been listening to that um, podcast uh, that's out at the moment from the ABC about the Whitlam dismissal and uh, the number of journalists who were in Sydney but heard that something was happening so fled down to Canberra to get there and uh, to be there for the, for the um, announcement on the steps. At, at that podcast is fantastic, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. No, absolute cracker. But that's right, you, you can be, you know, there, there's a diversity of experience of being a reporter. Um, and, and you can be at the front row of history. The 11th is, is what that's, that's called, that podcast. Mm. Uh, tell me, give me a bit of insight, though. I'm always impressed by uh, the on-location reporters who can sort of deliver straight to camera with uh, this, this speech about what's happened and summarising everything. Uh, are, are they working with an idiot sheet? Or is it all there? Do you have it all in your head and you're just one, one take? Well, this is where the inner amateur actor skills that you have can help. Um, essentially, you get good at it, and you are to stream. Of, you know, you've got a, you've got a, It's off the top of your head. You will not have an auto cue. And you know the facts you've got to hit. The bigger and the more complicated it is, the that's right. You, you're you're preparing two or three notes, and um, you've got to go live. But it's just like a politician having to speak at a press conference. You know, you get, you get better skilled at it, but, you know, you, you do need to be prepared. Um, and, of course, Mark, the late Mark Colvin was uh, uh, terrifying and very naughty. He would throw questions at you <laughs> just to test you, which, which you know, just to test you. which And you think, oh, how on earth would I know that? You've just got to come up with an answer. Yeah. And look unfazed. Look, look unfazed. I mean, I've had, I've had some terrible moments too. I, I'll never forget. Um, I spent forty seconds at the beginning of the seven pm news, um, staring at the camera, not able, not able to hear <laughs> the uh, Juanita Phillips um, asking me a question, which uh, is will is on my goof tape. Uh, absolutely terrifying and horrible. <laughs> you won a couple of Walkley Awards, which is impressive. Well, it was it was it was a bit of fun. Yes, um, back back in the days when they had a radio current affairs uh, section, I won two years in a row. Um, and the funny thing was, I uh, did it. I, I pitched to my producer at Radio Current Affairs, "Can I go to Orange to cover Opera Australia on tour?" And they said no. 
I said, look, while I'm out there, can I also cover this um, juvenile justice scheme that the New South Wales government has introduced to take children off the streets um, if they see they're in trouble? So because I was interested in opera, I, I had to, um, <laughs> I went and uh, I did two stories when I was in Orange. and. Uh, the uh, the serious one won, won the Walkley when uh, when everything everything went right. I put together a, an interesting piece of radio for AM. So uh, there you go. My motivation was the arts, but um, my my vocation was uh, news and current affairs. I guess uh, you're continuing to see a lot of theatre. You're a big theatre fan, and um, that's part of your your, your weekly activity. Well, up until uh, March twenty third, um, yes, I would, I would, I would go to. The- <laughs> yes, we're we're all in that uh, that queue. Yeah, that's right. But both uh, first in my capacity as sort of co-publishing Stage Whispers magazine, uh, reviewing theatre, and also licensing musicals uh, through my theatrical agent. David Spicer Productions, which. You started in 1998, I believe, with licensing two musicals. How did that all start? Well, as I told you at the beginning, I used to be in Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, and then something wonderful happened in the late 90s. I became a daddy. And um, so my wife said, look, you really can't go two nights a week to rehearsals. You need to find a, well, I've got this uh, incredibly beautiful but demanding baby. Um, So I, decided I would write a book about musicals, like a let's go guide to musicals, uh, to try to get amateur theatres to do a greater variety of shows. I had Currency Press interested, and I started doing this research and putting it together, and then the book fell over, because it wasn't going to sell many copies. But an eccentric composer from England said, oh David, would, um, would you be my agent? And he'd written a musical adaptation of the Jane Austen novel Pride and Prejudice. So I then said, well, I'm too busy writing my book to be an agent. But then anyway, I, I gave it a go and I wrote an article in Stage Whispers magazine and promptly got two bookings for Pride and Prejudice, the musical in Melbourne and Sydney. And I thought, oh, this is fun. This will be my new hobby. I'll license copyright to musicals. And so uh, that's how it started, completely by accident. That's uh, a lot of careers are started by happy accidents, aren't they? Yeah, and so from there I thought, oh well, um, that was fun. I got the thrill of going to Melbourne, slams in Melbourne, and I'm at a musical study there as the curtain went up and they did Pride and Prejudice the musical, which I still license occasionally. And then I just started looking around and going, what Australian musicals are out there that deserve to be promoted, that deserve to have them published to a high standard that I could, as my hobby, because I was a full-time journalist, full-time ABC reporter, that I could publish to a higher standard. And what I'm, and to explain, when you receive the sound of music from the Rogers and Hammerstein library, you know, the, the parts are beautifully published, there's all those resources, but a lot of, you know, I thought, un, unexploited Australian musicals were not published, the sheet music wasn't published to a high enough standard and they weren't being so I became an, a music theatre archaeologist. I was fossicking around what shows could I dig up and promote to see if I could get schools and amateur theatres to stage them. 
And I guess at this time, a lot of those Australian shows are being represented by the literary agent or, or the agent of the, of the, of the writer. That, that's correct. Some of them would have been, were represented by literary agents. Some of them had no agency at all. They were represented, or, or some were, were um, you know, completely uh, were in the concept stage. So what I, what I dug up, I got Boys Own Macbeth by Graham Bond. I got sort of um, I got the music published for that, and we had a, you know we had you know dozens of productions of that. I went to Dennis Watkins and Chris Harriet and got Beach Blanket Tempest, the surf rock musical inspired by Shakespeare, which we published, and we had eight productions in the first year, which I was very excited. We still get bookings for Beach Blanket Tempest, and then I had the biggest adventure at all of all, which was Paris by John English and David Mackay. Which I don't, are you very familiar with it, Peter? Yeah, absolutely. It had a, a, a big concert production, didn't it? Uh, well, sort of recently. Yeah. Absolutely. So what happened was that was released as a concept album. Yes, it was originally, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And and uh, John English and two of his business associates invested a huge amount of money to create this amazing cast album, uh, which sold well, uh, but they'd overcapitalized on the album didn't invest into developing the show as a piece of theatre. So I came on board 13 years later and said, well, look, you've given up on professional productions. Why don't I let amateurs have a go at it? So we went through the huge adventure of getting this amazing orchestration, um, uh, handwritten for the London City Orchestra on the original album, getting that. Kevin Hocking uh, published it. Uh, for me, um, and we had um, a simultaneous world premiere of Paris uh, on the Central Coast in, Gos- uh, in, uh, in Gosford, the Lake yep. Street Theatre, and at the Rockdale Town Hall. So we had the simultaneous world premiere of it at two, ven- two venues. And since then, we've had about 26 productions around the world. Um, I had it translated into German. I went and saw it in Austria. Can you believe it? Wow. Been in five different countries. Um, and the funny thing, funny experience about seeing it in Austria is I staged it myself once in 2008 in Gosford with uh, Stuart Smith, the director. And um, uh, we were lucky enough to have John English in the cast. Fabulous. Yes. And so he, uh, uh, which was tremendously exciting. Uh, that was, of course, the production was held together with sticky tape. <laughs> <laughs> but we we got there we got there and then when i went to austria to see it i sat there and i'd sent them a video of the production i produced in gosford and they did an exact replica wow the same set the same choreography the same costumes i mean this in the suburbs two hours out of vienna seeing an exact replica of paris that i put on in Gosford. That's hysterical. Stuart Smith, the director, because we, we had the idea for the Trojan horse. And um, our tra- original idea for the Trojan horse didn't work. At the last minute, he had the idea of making them like the Trojan horse like Venetian blinds. So he sent me to Bunnings. Go to Bunnings and buy fence palings and we'll have a Venetian blind parrot, uh, Trojan horse, which is pulled up. And it works beautifully. So anyway, there, so, which, so there I am in Austria. And there's the same Venetian blind. <laughs> so it's like uh, we were the broad, we were the Broadway 
edition, <laughs> which they were copying. So that's been a, uh, a huge adventure. And we, Mark Featherby um, uh, 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 produced a, a fantastic concert version of it with John Waters, Ben Mingay, and a whole raft of stars in 2017. Well, congratulations. That's, that's a great story. I didn't realise that, that you've taken a, a very little-known work and then developed it in a, for the world stage. Yeah, so that, that, and we, we, of course we're forever hopeful of uh, more productions in the future. Uh, but um, yeah, that was quite an adventure, and we've had five different editions of it. So my garage is full of five different sort sets of orchestrations, right. <laughs> which is which is you know which is what you have to do with musicals. You know, you don't just produce the album and expect them to put the show on, which is what happened with Paris. But the show has to be developed, and it takes time and it takes investment. You've got some big fish too there. I noticed you represent the boy from Oz. Well, that's right. So um, once I started off by, you know, as a hobby, put, pulling together, sort of, you know, uh, d- digging up uh, arch- archival shows. And then I sort of got a taste for, oh, I'd like to represent a few big shows. So my biggest coup of my, my career was, was convincing um, Robert, Robert Fox and, and Ben Gannon to give me the amateur rights to the boy from Oz. Um, so uh, that was a huge thrill and for a, and a, and a huge coup. Um, and when you're an agent for musicals um, and you're a very little one like me, uh, you know, you've got little fish, which, you know, and you've got, you know, medium-sized fish. Um, but when you get a big fish and you send the email out saying, announcing the amateur rights for the boy from Oz, and you see the email shooting in from around Australia, pick me, pick me, pick me, let me do it first. Yeah. So that's sort of that's that's, that's uh, a very exciting. Um, it's, it's, and I also picked up the rights to Saturday Night Fever the musical. Uh, oh, terrific! And, yeah, and also, of course, my biggest blockbuster of my career, uh, We Will Rock You. Oh wow! So that that's 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 which has been even bigger than The Boy from Oz. Um, and so that, and people say, how do you get the rights and? Um, that's a trade secret but look it's 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 really well, it's a lot of whining and dining i imagine oh yes that's right you know i was there i was, there. I was whining and dining him you know i mean how do you want it well look the thing is you, you just got to have a bit of a bit of uh persistence and if you're a journalist you're not intimidated by uh, by asking questions or knocking on doors i mean i had to interview prime ministers and you know and take on politicians and you know so asking for the rights to a musical is not sort of just a business transaction but um so so we'll rock you and of course i've got ladies in black tremendous we're tremendously excited to, to publish to a high standard and um that we had 10 productions in the first year which is you know there's an australian uh, written novel with a an Australian-produced musical, New Zealand creatives, Tim Finn, uh, Simon, uh, Simon Phillips, and Carolyn Burns. So, um, but um, and we had ten amateur productions in the first year. So that was also very exciting to be able to license these uh, this Australian musical. But um, interestingly enough, it's my my most widely performed musical in my catalogue. Is not it is back to the eighties written by Neil Gooding, um, which is a jukebox musical that, that consistently gets 20, 30, 40 productions a year. 
across Australia and New Zealand. And um, it, uh, it, it's a combination of, uh, Neil wrote it, uh, set in an American high school, and um, but it, it's an Australian musical, and that's gone around the world and entered the catalogue of Music Video International. And it's also spawned other jukebox musicals, um, uh, which I represent, popular pop stars and disco inferno, and this great Australian rock musical. Now, the thing about um, jukebox musicals, you know, some people love them, some people loathe them. Um, what I say is um, uh, they're particularly good for high schools that don't particularly have a high level of musicality. Uh, for enthusing for enthusing students who perhaps otherwise might not go into the school musical, that, that, that if there are some familiar songs, that's that that helps them. But I mean, of course, we want we want full book musicals, um, but you know, jukebox musicals um, have their place. Tell tell me, do you get many production requests for Legs Diamond, the Peter Allen musical? <laughs> well, funny you should mention that. Um, I recently uh, licensed one production of it in America because I, I have the, uh, the secondary rights to the boy from Oz in the United States and a company in Florida uh, wanted to um, stage Legs Diamond, which of course is Peter Allen's famous infamous musical that, that flopped. But it has a terrific score. Well, it's got some great, great songs in it. It's got some, yeah. of course, which were picked up for The Boy From Oz. And, you know, um, When I Get My Name In Lights, of course, is from Legs Diamond. Um, and uh, it's got some other beautiful songs, which, um, set, you know, are some of Peter Allen's best works. But so I've had one production of it in Florida, which they did as a follow-up concert. Um, but I had uh, a lot of trouble getting the rights for it um, because the playwright um, uh, wasn't very proud of it and so it was quite difficult. Wow, so they didn't want it to have a life again. Yes, but I, I had I licensed it once and I had another application in a tiny little theatre in New York uh, and uh, I think it got uh, stubbed out by COVID-19. But if you would like to do a concert version of Legs Diamond, I have the music published. Brilliant. That'd be great. That'd be great. Now, are you required to see every production that you license? Absolutely. I'm there. No, of course not. <laughs> well, I just thought you might have to be, you know, like the, the police and go and make sure that there's been no cuts because we've seen some infamous productions, professional productions, where numbers have been cut and they've got into all sorts of trouble. Yes. No. Well, it, it would be impossible to um, to see everything. And, um, uh, but I do like getting around. Um but uh, certainly, I'd like to get to a. I mean, uh, it's impossible from an expense point of view and also a time point of view. And, uh, and, and once you get to a level of success with the business, and you've got 100 or 150 productions a year, all going on at the same time, it's not possible. As much as we'd love to do, as, love, as much as we'd love to see. I saw 13 productions of We Will Rock You in one year. Oh, that's, that's a lot. How many shows do you represent? Because, you know, I, I read by 2018, you're licensing more than 200 productions. That's a big growth from two. It is a big growth from two. It is a big growth from two. Um, it's, uh, I, 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 I represent a few catalogues of, of plays and pantomimes as well, which, which have um, 
uh, a, a large volume in them. I mean, a couple of hundred, a couple of hundred. But, but, but the thing is, if you, if you go to the other agents, they might represent thousands of, of titles because they would be representing, you know, large catalogues like Samuel French has got thousands of works in the catalogue. So, um, but I'd have 30 or 40 core shows that are my main ones that I'd that have. It's important to have a, a local player, I think, uh, managing Australian products. So, um, bravo for uh, for starting DSP. Well, yes, it's been it's been an adventure, and um, you know, through a combination of you know licensing Australian works, and which is always you know I'm proud of, and also getting to import a couple of international blockbusters, I was able to wait for it give up my day job wow um so um that was that was that was the big breakthrough um that um i uh was at the abc i was part-time for the last 10 years and then they came up with another round of redundancies and i thought oh dear oh dear how much would you would i get if i left and they, they said oh i said okay pick me and so i left it was i was quite sad quite sad to leave um but but difficult to do both. Well, it, that's right. I mean, often I've, I've sort of thought to my, since I left the ABC in 2018, I thought, how did I ever get the t- uh, time to be a journalist? Yeah. Because, you know, I licensed the shows, and um, uh, of course, with Neil Litchfield in 2008, we've been publishing Stage Whispers magazine. Yeah, which is like a, a showbiz bible in Australia. Yes, so stage stage whispers. Of course, I wrote for stage whispers back in the in the in nineteen ninety eight, um, and they it helped f- found David Spice Productions because I got two bookings by promoting the show in the magazine. And then two thousand seven, the original owners of it they run it into the ground, and so Neil and I took the big plunge to purchase the magazine. Um, and it's, uh, you know, remains the sort of print and website uh, which covers professional theatre and independent theatre and amateur theatre. So we're, we're different. We sort of cover the industry vertically rather than horizontally. And so we have professional reviews, of course, um, amateur reviews, of course, uh, how-to guides for schools, so we, 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 we like, you know, we're there to encourage people to participate uh, in the performing arts and also members of the public to buy tickets. So how, how old's the magazine now? It's coming up for its 25th anniversary. Oh, fantastic. It started off in Melbourne. It, it would have definitely died. It really should have died in 2008. It was very dire. It was, uh, but it, it had a very faint pulse. I used to write for it uh, and... Um, we used to sort of cringe when, when we saw some of the copies in the mid-2000s. In its heyday, it was a good business in the early 90s before, before the internet, and it was actually, you know, employed three or four people full time. Well, remember, you're probably like me, growing up, you know, before online communications, uh, magazines like Theatre World and Plays and Players, that's how you kept in touch with what was happening in the UK and on Broadway. You'd subscribe to these magazines and eagerly look forward to once a month where they'd arrive and you could just salivate over everything that was happening. Absolutely. And what's on, reviews. And of course, with the digital revolution, all of that volume of great information is available at people's fingertips. 
You just go to playbill.com and it's all there. That, that's it, yes. So print magazines have, uh, of course, uh, are struggling. We've sort of diversified having a website which gets one and a half million visits a year. And, and that's worldwide too, I guess. Yes. So, so um, but as, a, as I said, uh, we're sort of hanging on. Now, for the May and June edition, for the first time, sadly, in almost 25 years, Stage Whispers magazine will not be printed. Wow. Um, that is because our advertising has declined by 90%. <laughs> Can you believe it? Wow. Because people are not putting shows on. I mean, not. So we're, but we are putting out a fantastic e-edition, uh, which is free. So you'll be able to read the whole, full Stage Whispers magazine, flip through experience on our website, stagewhispers.com.au for May and June. We've got a fantastic edition coming up um, and um, uh, we will be back in print very soon. But we're having a pause from being in print just for one edition while we weather the, the, the cold winds of COVID-19. Well, you, you're very generous with sharing the issues too. I notice, you know, you go into a lot of theatre foyers and there's copies there available to take. And uh, But people can subscribe, can't they also? Absolutely. We need people to subscribe. And uh, there is there is still a market for, for print magazines. Um, but, um, you know, there is a combination of, you know, as of running a business, we need to get into the into in front of eyeballs for uh, the advertisers. And also, and also, you know, we prefer people to, of course, to purchase it because um, that underpins the journalism behind it. Now, in the May June edition, I've interviewed John Frost, who's, who's looking the, into the crystal ball about when the theatre will reopen. So, um, and also, um, I've, I've also done a wonderful feature. Um, I've spoken to actors who've been thrown into a part at the very last minute and how they cope with understudies and I've got some spectacular examples of people uh, of having to save the day in musicals and operas. So um, and we've got a wrap-up of um, all of the big, big shutdown, all the theatres that have had sadly had to close their doors, all the, 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 the art, art ache um, and we're looking at professional theatre uh, and also uh, amateur theatre, how, how it's affected the industry uh, vertically, not just horizontally. Well, David, what, what do you think is going to happen on the other side of this pandemic? Will, will audiences crave live entertainment again? Will they be willing to gather in, in large groups? Can, could they afford to participate with, with live theatre again? Well, it, 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 we really don't know how this story ends, do we? Yeah, no. We don't, know, we don't know what is, is there going to be a happy ending or is this going to be a one, a, one horrible sequel after another? I think there are, in the current issue I've looked at, I've looked at it and spoken to John Frost as well, Australia's leading producer, and I think there are three options. One, we could, Australia and New Zealand can, you know, miraculously kill off the virus in our, you know, in our countries and we can limp back later this year and perhaps, you know, um, but it won't be till next year that there's big musicals. Alternatively, we won't, there'll be no major theatre at all until next year, uh, which is going to be devastating. The third option, which is that this thing keeps coming back every year, and, you know, this, it, you know that it mutates and that every winter we have to deal with it. 
and that's going to be long-term problems. Are older, are older people going to feel safe coming to the theatre? You know, is how is the economy going to bear up? Are people going to um, uh, want to? You know, are they going to have the money to spend a lot of money on the live entertainment? I think that you know, if if the coast is clear, they will be bursting at the seams to go back to do all the things which they were doing up until March 2020. Um, but we just don't know. We don't know how this story. We don't know how this story is going to end. Well, well looking back at a couple of weeks ago, you know, when we we had Anzac Day. I think that that served as a salient example of of how society essentially needs to adapt and modify behaviours towards calendar events and and traditions, whether that be going to the theatre or or whatever, um, with the current limitations that are are placed upon us. It's it's being creative and and thinking about how we can now go into this this brave new world, I I guess. Of course, the sad thing is for the performing arts is that we were the first industry to close. Yeah. We will be the last industry to open. To return, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I was sitting, you know, up in early March, in a very famous theatre in Sydney, 111-seat theatre. Somebody behind me was coughing during the opening night. My wife was sitting next to me as a nurse. She was sort of horrified mm. on the cusp of and the, and the person kept coughing during the second act too. So, you know, they... And now, immediately afterwards, the next week, all the theatres were saying, big signs, do not come into the theatre yep. if you have a cough. Yep. You know, and so the theatre industry has to lift its game. Um, people, the members of the public have to be, be more aware of it, and I think they are becoming more aware of it. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, the sad fact is that these large performing arts events are not viable unless they can get minimum number of seats sold performance. Yes, I've had people suggesting, well, why don't people sit three seats apart? I said, you can't do that. People have to make money from from mounting the show, don't they? Well, John Frost said I, he will not reopen big musicals if he can't fill the theatres, full stop. Yeah. You know, simple as that. Um, you know, look, the high school has been putting on the music, the musical, kids get to put the show on, they can ration it for the parents. Right, you know, that's possible, right? Amateur theatres want to put on a show. Um, you know, some publicly funded plays might be able to limp ahead with those sorts of restrictions. But, you know, major performing arts has to be able to have a crowded foyer. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to reopen. It's not going to be the same. Yeah, there's big, big bucks involved, and I think you know we've we've all been conditioned to certain behaviours now to protect ourselves. And when it sort of uh, is a, a little easier, we're going to have to reprogram ourselves in order to have that human interaction. And you know, theatres are a classic example. They're such a communal event where we all go and uh, share that that one experience. Um, yeah, we're really going to have to to reprogram ourselves to to be comfortable to to sit in a theatre again. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, my two businesses, you know, come to a shattering, shattering halt. <laughs> you know, um, you know, people won't advertise in the magazine, and I'm getting emails from amateur theatres around the country. Um, uh, of course, they're all postponing their shows now. If they put them on, if they, everyone puts it on next year, 
we can all dust our dust ourselves off, get back at our feet, and you know, uh, we've got some government assistance, um, we'll be fine. But what if it stretches out for two or three years? Then, then we're in real trouble. I'm hopeful that that you know Australia is doing well enough that we're going to have a softer landing than we might otherwise would have had. Um, but um, we just don't know this. We just don't know what how this coronavirus is going to mutate or behave. We just have to do our best. Of course, the sad thing is, uh, in times of great trauma, world trauma, whether it be depressions or world wars, etc., it was the theatres that flourished because people wanted escape, didn't they? But um, this bloody virus has just um, put a, an absolute halt to that. Yes, and I've, I've commissioned a story for a future issue about what people watched in past during past trauma. I think, and, we, and as you said, uh, that's right. In certain contexts, you know, people could crowd into into, into performing arts venues to enjoy it. Now we're all watching it, of course, streamed online, and you know, that, that's a good community activity, and and more and and people are being able to work from home. And certainly, sample productions uh, online, but it's not the same thing as hearing the orchestra tune up and, and, and feeling that interaction between the audience and the performers on the stage. Great. Let's not finish up on too much of a downer. I want I want to learn a little bit more about the Association of Community Theatres, where you've been communications officer uh, since 1995. Absolutely, I'm trying to. I've been trying to to lose that job. But <laughs> You're too good at it. Every time the AGM comes up, I get re-elected. Well, there's no competition. So yes, the Association of Community Theatre. We're an umbrella organisation for community theatre, and uh, we've got a couple of 150 amateurs, and we do a few things. We um, put out a what's on every year, which we publish. And we, uh, if you go to www.communitytheatre.com.au, you can uh, see what's on uh, on a month month basis. We have a conference every two years. Nancy Hayes is our patron. We, we ah, wonderful Nancy. <laughs> and um, we uh, have a, a public liability insurance policy, um, which uh, saves them a uh, money every year. So, um, uh, so I do, I think we do get around to a few cuts. And look, the people listening that, that you know uh, don't go to amateur theatre too often, um, there is a wonderful diversity of productions out there. Um, and you know, at amateur theatre can be highly sophisticated, and really members of the general public uh, would not be able to tell you know a lot of difference at, at its at its at its top level. Uh, between that and, and a professional show, of course, of course you're paying a fraction of the price. Like in Sydney, you've got you know, Packet Productions, which is Pro-Am, you've got the movie theatre company, the Random Society. Melbourne, you've got Clock, which are incredible. There's tremendous, uh, strong musical societies in Victoria. But also regionally, Newcastle, Launceston, uh, Townsville, um, Wollongong, Canberra, Further you get away from the capital cities, the more sophisticated uh, the community leaders can be because they've got less competition. And people would be surprised at the resources that amateur theatres have. Um, I mean, you might get you know one individual putting on a huge pro am with a budget of half a million dollars, 
it's you know it's not unheard of. And also in New Zealand, they have a network of musical societies there, which are extraordinary. They build they build sets. Uh, they they, they um, six clubs will get together, and the, they they will take the box office half a million to a million dollars in the musicals. These are in towns in New Zealand with a population of 200,000. So community theatre um, is, uh, you know, is quite a big business. Certainly, there's the ye old, You'll get the you know the ye old pantomime and the, you know, the little creaky theatre restaurant there. And I have seen some very amateurish shows once in the moon room. But by and large, community theatre is tremendous value. And also gives opportunity for people to see a range of productions which are not available in We see also a lot of, I'm talking about Sydney, a lot of those suburban companies like Chester Street out at, at Chatswood or, or Miranda Musical Society in the Shire who are, are providing a, a really valuable community service because um, those communities may not want to travel all the way into city, into the the big smoke uh, to see those pro productions, so that's how they get their theatre fix through um, to those local companies. Well, absolutely, and they're paying you know forty dollars a ticket instead of one hundred and fifty dollars a ticket, and also they're you know they're seeing a very good standard of production. And you've got to you've got to think, you know, you've got a, a big orchestra, you've got uh, you know, all those people on stage, all the all that all that you know all that cap- human capital. Uh, with, you know, and of course they're all volunteers, and essentially, I mean, the, 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 the product on stage, in my view, uh, is usually a reflection of the calibre of the leadership of those community theatre companies. And like, you know, Clock in Melbourne, we've got Grant Alley, who was a former Coles executive, who retired and decided he, that in his um, spare time he was going to create them, you know, this amazing you know, huge help from everyone else. Yep. He led this, this great, this amazing infrastructure to build these huge sets. So they build the sets in, in Melbourne and then they toured and then these sets are then seen over the next two years all around Australia. So you see great quality in craftsmanship, you're seeing, you know, people who are very intelligent and talented. But you know, with day jobs that pay, that, that don't, that aren't, you know, that, that are still very talented, but they've got day jobs, and so um, because there's so few employment opportunities, so as I said, there's tremendous, you know, opportunities to see diversity of work. You know, cl- you're close to the action. Uh, you know, as a, you know, little theatres, and you know, there's some wonderful venues. The Genesians in Sydney, of course. Um, Sadly, we don't know whether they're ever going to be allowed back into the Kent Street premises before it's redeveloped. But that's a wonderful heritage. Beautiful theatre. Yeah. And the theatre, and you've got in Melbourne, you've got the um, you know, wonderful little venues, often owned by the amateur theatres. You know, and um, like there's, there's one in, in, in Lilydale in suburban Melbourne. It's called the Lilydale Athenian Theatre. Everybody gets um, a free sherry as they arrive. <laughs> yeah, and a free program, and then they see a wonderful crafted little play or musical. Thirty dollars, and they don't, and, and, you know, Brilliant. in the community. So, um, uh, I, you know, it's, 
stage whispers into DSP on encouraging people to participate and to see theatre in all its forms, community theatre, school theatre and professional Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing your many hats. Uh, I hope you've got a big hat stand in your hallway. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I forgot to mention the Bondi Theatre Company, which is my little independent theatre company that I put on three shows. I'm a, you're a producer as well. Again, I put on. I put on. I put on. I've only, unfortunately, the Bondi Theatre is um, being redeveloped. But for the last three years, I've put on. I've had a little season. Yeah. Like a Portman musical, a Motherhood musical, and also Bondi League. But um, we've run out of time, the viewer has come down, everyone's got more important. We've got to go bake some more cake, cakes and do some more gardening. <laughs> Thanks, David. Keep well, and um, hopefully we'll see you in a theatre foyer very, very soon. A crowded theatre foyer. It'll be a pleasure. David throws up much food for thought, and it was a delight to record that conversation for the Stages podcast. If you're a fan of live performance, do remember Stage Whispers. It is released monthly and contains all the information you require regarding the state of the arts in Australia on professional and community theatre stages. I hope you're faring okay at home and finding much to amuse and entertain during this coronavirus pandemic. Great time to catch up on that film you've been promising yourself to watch or that collection of books you've acquired or perhaps try a new recipe. And of course, there's a plethora of podcasts out there for you to peruse. You've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time.